Hello and welcome to the Six Ways from Sunday podcast. My name is Ben Wilson and we've taken a little bit of a break for some of the portion of the summer uh, from the podcast and we're diving right back into it um, this week with a great story and a wonderful guest that I'm excited to share with you. Uh, we're into the fall harvest season and so what better time of year to be talking about the Canadian Food Grains Bank and so my guest Today is Ari Vrieken, who is the Alberta Regional Representative of the Canadian Food Grains Bank. So, Ari, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ben. I'm so excited that you had some time to chat with me and that we got to meet. And, uh, and I think this is going to be a great story to share with our listeners. Uh, the Six Ways from Sunday podcast is really all about sharing real human stories of spirituality and faith journeys, because everyone's journey is so unique and so important. And we have so much that we can learn by sharing our stories with each other. So uh, I think the topic of world hunger uh, has, is always an important one. It's a, an issue, a challenge that we've always wrestled with uh, as far back as you could possibly go. And it's unfortunately going to be something that we struggle with into the future as well. But right now, it seems that it's a particularly large challenge with everything going on in the world. Maybe you, if you could explain for our listeners kind of first just what the Canadian Food Grains Bank okay. is, and then we can get into why you chose to, to get involved with it. That sounds like a good plan. Sure. Uh, the Canadian Food Grains Bank is a partnership of uh, 15 uh, churches and church-related uh, relief and development organizations that focus on fighting hunger in this world. Mm. Uh, we're, uh, this year is our 40th anniversary. And um, each of these organizations has uh, a number of countries where they are working, uh, developing countries. And um, they're doing food-related programming there. And uh, each of these organizations has a bank account uh, with us. And then we have a general fund as well that everybody can uh, use from. And so in Canada, we have a lot of support uh, throughout the entire country. In Alberta, that support looks like uh, small groups of farmers that get together and that uh, find a field. Sometimes they rent a field and sometimes a field is donated. And um, they grow a crop and then they uh, sell that crop and uh, they uh, donate the proceeds to the Canadian Food Grains Bank. Okay. So this is not a, a case of uh, farmers donating the grain itself. They're selling the grain and then that becomes the monetary donation. Got it. Yeah. It used to be that in the early, early days of the organization that farmers actually donated the grain. I remember when I was working on a farm in Southern Alberta that my boss uh, asked me to uh, to bring a, a tandem truck full of grain to the uh, Iron Springs uh, elevator, and uh, it was supposed to be donated to the Food Grains Bank. I had no idea what the Food Grains Bank was in those days, and I didn't really care. <laughs> but I still remember, because it was such an odd request, and yeah. I still remember that I had to say to the elevator uh, operator that, no, this is for the Canadian Food Grains Bank. And so it used to be like that. And then uh, about 25, 26 years ago, uh, groups of farmers started to uh, to engage in these growing, what we call growing projects. Got and it. So that is in Alberta, sort of Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. Those are the main 
uh, ways in, in which we get donations. And well, that model makes, I think, so much more sense logistically because the place, the geographic locations where you have, you know, some fields that are growing a crop that's going to be donated, that's not necessarily anywhere close to where the need is and where the hunger is happening. No. We used to, uh, when the when the Canadian Wheat Board had its monopoly here, uh, we used to have to send the grain actually overseas. And uh, that became uh, a real problem. And uh, especially when the container uh, industry became more and more monopolized by uh, Merck's, uh, the, the prices went up. Mm. Um, there is a There was an example of... Uh, of us purchasing, uh, so there was a there's a family in in Zimbabwe uh, uh, at one point, and we and they uh, eat corn, uh, uh, non-GMO uh, maize uh, in that part of the world, mm -hmm. and we couldn't find that here in those quantities, and so we purchased uh, or we used the grain from the prairies and, uh, and trucked it by train to. Uh, uh, Montreal, where we put it into bags and put it on a ship, and that went to Amsterdam, and then it got transshipped to a smaller vessel that went through the Mediterranean and the Suez Canal to the eastern Africa, where we found a bread mill that wanted to use Canadian wheat. So we <laughs> swapped the, the we swapped the wheat for maize that they had purchased in Lesotho. Now wow. we drove the maize to uh, to Zambia, and uh, that's where we milled it and put it into bags, and then shipped it to Zimbabwe. What a process! So we started going to back to the farmers, and we have so many farmers that are supporting us, and and you know, they're they're clear thinkers, and so uh, we said, "Does it make sense to you?" And they go, "No, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever." <laughs> so we said, "Well, why don't you talk to your uh, your MPs?" in your elected officials and say, this is this is nonsense. It costs too much and it costs too much time. And so they did. And uh, a number of months later, the, the government uh, loosened the, uh, the restrictions, the requirements uh, of tied aid. And about a year later, they, uh, they untied it completely. So wow. now we can sell the grain here. We bring the, the money overseas. And if there's, a, say, a, a famine in Niger, we would go to, say, Burkina Faso, the next country over, uh, to see if they have a surplus of grain. And then we purchase it there. So then we benefit their local farmers. Absolutely. And, yeah. That's uh, of course, we don't want to. Yeah, we don't want to purchase it in Niger if there's a famine there, because usually when there's a famine, the price goes up and you don't want to negatively affect the, the local markets. So, right. By putting as, even more pressure and driving the price up even more. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, and so uh, so that's uh, that's sort of how this works. And there are two major uh, ways in which we operate overseas, and one of them is uh, that we provide food, uh, and this is in uh, for people who experience a food crisis and mm. are, are really just need food now. Uh, a lot of those people are also in uh, refugee camps or. Uh, IDP camps, and uh, they have had to flee their homes and their farms, and uh, you basically can't provide for themselves. Sometimes they're not allowed to work in the countries that they are fleeing to. Uh, 
So then we give either a food ration or we give, uh, say, a pre-loaded uh, um, uh, credit card mm. or a voucher. So we make deals with local uh, local stores and say, okay, if someone comes in with this voucher, you can give them a bag of rice and then we will pay you for it. And so that is the direct uh, food assistance that we do. And then we do long-term um, food security work. So working with local farmers and families to improve uh, crop production or market access or oh, wow. uh, access to, uh, to finances uh, to uh, help, uh, help them to uh, be able to, to grow enough food for their families. And that is the work that my wife and I have been mainly involved in for uh, the last uh, sort of 40 years, I think now. And um, so I used to uh, work the last seven years we were in Niger, West Africa. And when we got there, uh, farmers uh, have very small plots of land and they could only grow food for the families for about eight months. So that means that for four months, they would call it the hungry season, the Sudu. Wow. And uh, so they would start uh, harvesting wild foods, berries or leaves, sometimes even grass seed, uh, if it was serious. And they would sell their goats on the market to uh, to uh, purchase a bag of rice. And uh, But those those hungry seasons were just at the moment when the farming season started. So that means that while you have to do your farm labor, which is all by hand, you don't have sufficient nourishment right. to give you strength. And so it became kind of a double up. Uh, for oh, no people. kidding. So, um, but then uh, we started working uh, with them, uh, with people there. And uh, so we actually were uh, seconded to a local organization that wanted to do good development work in their own country. And so it was a, a combination of uh, organizational capacity building. So making sure that that local organization had the capacity to do good development work. And then we were mentoring uh, community workers uh, at the same time. And uh, after about four or five years, uh, farmers came back to us and said, you know, I think that we're we're good. We're uh, we're going to be able to produce sufficient food for our families. What we want to do now is some cash cropping, and so that Ooh. we can sell some stuff off and and uh, and get some extra cash in. And so, when people come to you with that kind of uh, uh, story, then you know that uh, you know that you're having been... some success. Yeah. So you're, basically, they're transitioning from a subsistence farming to farming where there's actually a profit at the end of the year that was the idea yeah and what they wanted to do is uh, they wanted to to grow cotton because in in the neighboring country in Burkina Faso they grew cotton for uh, for uh, cash crop unfortunately just at that time uh, the US uh, government started to uh, uh, dump uh, cotton on the on the world market, and farmers in Burkina Faso were getting out of business because they couldn't compete with those prices. Wow! And so we had to tell them, you know, probably cotton is not a good idea at this point because 
uh, you're not going to be able to compete uh, on the world market because you have to sell cotton somewhere. Sure. So and uh, individual farm families would be trying to make these decisions maybe without that global perspective that you're able yeah. to help uh, provide. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, and and because that was how the neighbors did it. That's why right. they wanted to do it. And they had not figured out that this was going to be. So and they ended up actually uh, growing sesame seed, which was uh, an oil crop, which was uh, really lucrative as well. Mm. So, but they don't have large plots of land. We're dealing with, you know, uh, smallholder farmers, you know, two, two to four acres, maybe. Uh, and so, yeah, you have to grow your own food on that. You have to grow your peanuts or whatever it is that uh, the women are are growing, and then a little bit of um, of the oil seeds uh, to sell uh, on the right. market. So, yeah. So, are you mentioned that you've um, that you spent how many? Was it seven years or so? The last uh, seven years were in uh, in Niger, Niger, yeah. and and many years before that, working in development. Um, I'm not sure how many of those years you were with Canadian Food Grains Bank and um, other other organizations maybe before your present role, but um, maybe this is a good time to pivot into into sort of your personal journey into this whole world of of development work. What brought you to that that work, or what has kept you in it for all these years? I'm sure it's very difficult, but also very rewarding. What is it that drew you to this work? Um. Well, I immigrated to Canada in 1977, and uh, I met my wife uh, in uh, in in the church where I used to go to. Uh, she was hard to miss because she was playing guitar up front, <laughs> and uh, ended up carrying guitar cases and things like that. Um, and uh, she she's a nurse from background, and someone in the church had always told her that. Once she got her nurse, nursing license, she should become a missionary. And uh, we we kind of talked about that when we were going out. And uh, we said, well, I wonder what that's all about. And so there was an organization here uh, in Calgary called Arusha Center. And it was an, uh, a public education uh, place uh, where they would uh, teach you about international development. And so... Uh, we went there and it was a super challenging uh, exercise for us because they were saying things that we did not hear at home. And, uh, and in the beginning, I'm just kind of going, we're sitting here with a bunch of communists or something. And <laughs> which was not really true, <laughs> but they were, they were talking about the arms race and how it affected developing countries. They were talking about uh, trade and how it affected uh, developing countries. And they were talking about healthcare and they were talking about all kinds of stuff. And our eyes were open. We just kind of go, this is crazy. Something needs to be done. So it really stoked our interest to do something about it. And so we applied to... Uh, uh, the mission organization, which was actually the development arm of our, our church, international development arm. Mm. And uh, in those days, they were taking, uh, they were hiring people with uh, technical skills. And so I had a, a chemical engineering background at that time. And uh, we found ourselves uh, in uh, in uh, Liberia in 1983. Wow. 
and uh, I was hired there to be a uh, water and sanitation advisor to uh, a public health organization. Okay. And again, it was it, it was about uh, developing that organization's capacity to do good work in that area. So f- right from the start, my boss told me, uh, your, your job is to work yourself out of a job. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, and if you're not doing that, you're not doing the right thing. Yeah. And so, uh, so I worked with a local guy there, uh, and uh, he took over my job when I left. And which uh, is great, it creates yeah. local uh, a job yeah. for a local person. I yeah. think there's there's so much criticism around, and some often rightfully so, around international development and aid work, where these giant, you know, white hat white truck organizations come into these developing countries um, to fix things, but then yeah. they're there permanently. Like they're essentially, they, they do it in such a way that they are, their presence is required ongoing, yeah. you know, forever. Um, it from the perspective of just your average person in, let's say Alberta that wants to do good by supporting an organization, an aid organization, or giving a donation to, uh, I'm I'm part of the United Church, mm-hmm. and so we have uh, the United Church uh, Mission and Service Fund that, like like the Canadian Food Grains Bank, um, Mission and Service partners with on the ground organizations in countries uh, and in here in Canada has a lot of projects um, where the 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 partners are doing the work, not Mission and Service. So it's kind of a collection, um, a way of collecting the that support and financial aid. And then putting it in, leveraging it the best way they can in, on the ground where it's needed. But from the perspective of someone like myself, it can be quite overwhelming to try to figure out uh, where on that spectrum any one particular organization is between really ineffective and inefficient and some of the best shining examples of how uh, development work is done really well. Um, so I'm really curious with you having such a um, diverse background and many years working in this field. Uh, how are ordinary people like me who, you know, aren't spending a lot of time in developing countries to know, how are we able to discern and distinguish um, between what types of things are, are really wise to support with our dollars? Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a really tough question. Man. Um, it, it, that is not an easy thing to do because mm. You, in order to make that discernment, you need to know a bit about development as well and what is good and what is not good. Um, I would say, so with the Canadian Food Grains Bank, we are uh, being uh, um, judged, I guess, uh, every year by uh, an independent organization that rates uh, non-profit organizations. And they rate uh, us on the basis of the uh, proportion of the dollar uh, that is actually being spent in countries overseas. Hmm. And uh, so that is one way in which you can look at it. And uh, the Canadian Food Grains Bank has been in the top 10 for the last uh, four years now. Wow. And so that gives me uh, some pride and encouragement. Oh, for sure. Um, it would give donors a lot of confidence in the, the farmers who are donating yeah. their their, yeah. their harvest. So- and the other thing, too, is uh, we we also get amazing support from the Canadian government. 
So we have, uh, they are donating uh, in addition to our our donations from, from people on the ground, they uh, we have a contract with them for $25 million uh, for the next uh, five years, wow. uh, $5 million a year for, uh, uh, for emergency food assistance. Ooh. And so the government matches us uh, four to one uh, so every dollar that we uh, get from donors, they will provide four dollars for just just for uh, emergency food assistance, not for That's the. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, so we get that, and then we get on top of that, we get uh, other dollars. Uh, so, for instance, when the, uh, the, the trouble hit Haiti, um, they would donate uh, a number of of dollars for us. Right now, we're in. Uh, process of uh, raising some funds for Pakistan the uh, the um, the flooding there with mm-hmm. a with a uh, uh, coalition of organizations and the government is uh, uh, matching that by three million dollars and wow. so we so that is a and you know that if you get funds from the government you're going to be evaluated on a continuous yeah, right. basis and so yeah. If you don't produce, you won't get that support. And we get, we have amazing support. That's uh, fantastic. In addition to that, uh, Norwegian government is supporting uh, us for uh, for conservation farming projects. Uh, yeah. And so, so you can, so some of those folks, they vote with their wallets. And so you can look at that. And the third way in which I would try to discern is look at their websites and see how they are talking about their work and you can pretty quickly determine if someone uh, comes over paternalistic if it is us having to give them or us helping them so those words are alarm words for me we're not Mm. there to we're not helping we're not uh we're, we're helping but we're not in that mindset uh, what we what we like to say is we come alongside local people, and uh, we work together with them uh, to find a solution to uh, to food shortages, and uh, a lot of that actually is mobilizing their knowledge, um, and their knowledge about the land, uh, about their climate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, yeah, I have a farming background. But I have never grown millet, and in uh, in Niger, they eat millet as a staple. So what am I going to teach them? They're going to teach me how to grow millet. Mm. But I have some agricultural background, so I can ask some questions, etc. But really, a lot of this work is getting people together around the table and share their ideas with each other. Versus bringing Western solutions to African problems. (laughs) In fact, what we're doing now with conservation agriculture, we're doing a lot of conservation agriculture. And in fact, what we're doing in many places is reversing the damage that we used to uh, visit upon people when we started introducing monocropping or cash cropping. And, you know, and that made people more vulnerable to droughts and things like that because your entire crop is gone then. Whereas in the old days, people used to do a little bit of beans, a little bit of this, a little bit of peanuts, a little bit. And if it was a dry year, you know, that that part of the crop wouldn't work, but the rest would. And if it was a wet year, then that 
part of the crop worked really well and the rest of them were were lower so you 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 diversify your risk yeah so we're That's back brilliant. To- and it's like you said it's not this is not a, a new innovation it's actually going back to wisdom that is yeah. from you know hundreds of years old yeah I had a young man uh, coming to me in Niger when I was working there. He had just graduated from agricultural school and uh, he wanted a job with us. And uh, I ended up actually working with him for five years and then he took over my job and he's been doing my job for 16 years now uh, in there. But when he first came, my first assignment to him was, okay, get rid of the white shirt and your, your, um, uh, ironed pants and uh, start start looking like uh, a little bit down dressed, and then you go into the village and for the next uh, four to six weeks, you are going to interview the elders of these villages, and you're going to ask them what used to work really well for your grandparents, hmm. and uh, you know and. Anything from insect, how, how did you fight in, insects? How did you fight diseases? Uh, yeah. How did you get the best crops? And then uh, after that, he would come back to the office and I would say, okay, now that you have heard from these people what works well, now go to your books and see why that might have been so 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 successful. And so... Um, so now you can you can you can back check it to see if there's a technical right. uh, uh, reason for it. So, for instance, people used to use uh, a hard nut, uh, and they would pound it in a mortar into a powder, and they would uh, they would throw that onto the, the grain, and the insects would leave. And you know, so why why is that? Well. It, what it was is that the, the, the husk was really sharp and would get into the exoskeleton of these insects and it would irritate them. So they would leave. You're That's kidding. why it was successful. And so, you know, reinventing some of those. We had a tillage technique uh, that uh, we uh, reintroduced called Zyhole. And so you could take uh, a a field that is as sterile as my desktop, and we would get people to dig a hole about a foot wide and a foot deep in it, and put the the the, the dirt in little piles between those holes. And uh, then uh, they would get young kids to pick up manure from uh, from the, from the cows that were running loose, and fill those holes with manure in the hot season. So it was very, very hot, and it was hard work. But in the hot season, the heat would uh, start decomposing some of that manure, would break it down. And then on top of that, they had a lot of termites. The termites would also break down the manure, and they would also tunnel underneath those holes. That's what termites do. So with the first rains, when the first rains come, uh, usually uh, if you get one rain, it, it it turns into a you know three or four weeks of, of drought and so then people need to replant their crops but in these holes in the manure the manure soaks up that first rain and it has a little bit of water underneath in where the termites uh, were tunneling and the nitrogen in the manure would push the plant up to the four leaf stage really quickly 
and it would be strong enough to survive that drought period. Wow. And so uh, what we found out when we were doing introducing that, people would have about six times as, as much uh, crop as their traditional fields. No way. Now, the interesting part of that is that it was actually an ancient farming technique from Burkina Faso. Someone had done the same thing, had sat down with the elders and say, how did that work uh, for you guys? And they discovered that people used to do it that way. And uh, they would put uh, leaves and, and organic matter in there, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was actually a modification of an ancient tillage technique out of Burkina Faso, which was the next country over. That's incredible. So you don't, you know, I would never have thought of that. And all of my smartness would not have gotten us there. It was the local people's wisdom that we. Yeah. And, and so that's what you do in this work. It sounds too like that's something that can work at a scale that, um, you know, like in our Western perspective, we think of everything in, especially in Alberta, in these grids of quarter sections of 160 acres, and everything requires, you know at least a medium-sized tractor, if not, you know, like mm -hmm. implements and tractors and, and all of the equipment for combining and, and swathing, everything just keeps getting bigger over the last, yeah. you know, 50 years or so. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> taking some of the technology and the innovation and the advances that, that we've benefited from in our, you know, yields uh, have trended upwards in Canada in this, in our grain producing provinces and in Canada. Yeah. Uh, because of some of the, those advances in in technology and in machinery, but not not very much of that would be transferable to these you know two acre three acre little strip farms in in sub-Saharan Africa where everything is done with hand tools. Yeah. But but a principle yeah. like you're talking about, they can engage the community, they can get kids involved, and they can they can scale it proportionately and appropriately. Yeah. In in. That goes that that goes both ways. Um, so we realize that uh, in order to secure sufficient food for this world, uh, support for smallholder farmers in developing countries is is critical because they can farm very intensely. Uh, if you have two acres and you do it by hand, you can intercrop. So you can put a peanut next to uh, a uh, a millet stalk or mm -hmm. even in the same hole, and the peanut is a legume, it fixates nitrogen in the soil and the the, the, the millet stock uses nitrogen. So you can you can do that and you can do uh, you can make these xyholes. In every year you can make um, you know a hundred or five hundred xyholes and you, that's how you can enlarge your field. Mm -hmm. And uh, within three years you'll see a topsoil forming. Uh, Incredible, and um, you know you can so you can you can do much more intense uh, conservation farming if you have a small plot. Uh, here in Alberta, I drive you know past farms that five to ten sections of land with not a cow in sight. So how are you going to feed soil? How are you going to make sure that the soil uh, remains uh, fertile? Well, we do it here with fertilizer. Arti fertilizer yeah, artificial and, fertilizer. Yeah, fertilizer and chemicals. 
and there they use manure from the from the cows. Sometimes, if they have goats, they can stake their goats on their field uh, before uh, they start seeding it, and that that will retain the urea from the goats. Um, in, uh, there was one time that we usually I I I never um, uh, promoted fertilizer, chemical fertilizer, but there was one time when farmers really were asking for it. And what we did is we um, we taught them microdose fertilizer. So you get a Coke bottle, a cap of a Coke bottle, and you and that's you fill that with uh, with some fertilizer and you put it right at the bottom of each plant. And that's how you don't need to broadcast it because then half of the fertilizer is it's not going to do any good. Right. Yeah. So, but you can only do that if you have two to four acres. Right. You, you, I can't see an Alberta farmer sitting on his hands and knees and putting <laughs> microdose fertilizer. Although, you know. I guess, wouldn't we sort of have the equivalent of that with uh, air seeding, with seed drills that inject the, yeah. the pellets of fertilizer as yeah. they're making the hole in, like with no-till, zero-till yeah. um, planting? So yeah. it's interesting yeah. how you can look at these extremes of the small scale and then the extreme of the large scale. Yeah. Um, and how sometimes those principles are really the same or yeah, can be and, shared. Yeah. And there are farmers in Alberta that are starting to intercrop now. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And there's no-till. And there's a lot more interest in uh, organic farming or uh, making sure that the soil stays healthy. Mm -hmm. I'm in, in no way a critical of Alberta farmers because they know that their production is dependent on having healthy soil and healthy land oh, yeah. and healthy animals. And so it, it is to their best uh, advantage mm -hmm. to make sure that, uh, that they, uh, that they keep their soils healthy and so on and so forth. So, um, but what happens in Canada, of course, is the farmers are kind of stuck within a socioeconomic system that forces them to have to continuously, uh, get more land and bigger tractors and then more land in order to pay off the tractors and then bigger tractors yet. And so, you know, a combine these days, a new combine costs about a million dollars. And if you wow. look the margins of farming, uh, your profit margins are so small compared to other industries. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. They're forced to do more and bigger. Yeah. Uh, it's so part of our system here. It is. So speaking of those razor thin margins, it uh, it might be easy for someone who doesn't understand agriculture to look at a farmer's field and think, well, that's great that farmers are donating that year's uh, harvest, um, but it didn't really cost them anything because, you know, maybe the land's already paid off. And other than just buying their seed and their inputs, they got some people, some neighbors to come and bring their combines and they they made an, a fun event out of it. They harvest it and they sell the, the crop and off they go. And that's wonderful. But like you said, we're talking about an industry that has very thin profit margins. So yeah. not only were there all those input costs and the the, the value of that land that's, that's tied up and land is so expensive uh, in Western Canada and ev yeah. everywhere, it just keeps going up in, in value. Yeah. But th really they're giving up all of that that lost revenue as well. So, so yeah. the the support that you have from landowners and from producers in Alberta here is 
absolutely phenomenal. Like what an yeah. enormous gift to give. It's absolutely mind blowing. The the generosity of the people that I work with is absolutely mind blowing. Mm. Uh, I started my job last August, and uh, I think the second harvest I went to was in Picture Butte, and I parked my car, and I look on the road, and down the road comes this column uh, of combines, and and uh, grain carts, and yeah. bailers, and yeah. I was supposed to speak. Uh, say a few words on the beginning, and I couldn't. I I couldn't speak for a half hour. My I was weeping like a child because, in my mind, I see Jibo in Niger going, you know, cutting his harvest by hand. Yeah, and I'm going. He has no idea what material is coming here. We had you know seven seven or twelve grain trucks, B uh, uh, B train trucks. Uh, on the field, and w- at one point, uh, one of the Hutterites came came driving by with a truck, and he saw that uh, all this equipment on the on the field, and he just drove into the field and 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 stopped and his truck and and uh, wanted to know if he could help. Wow! And it is unbelievable. So and it's contagious, talking, though, isn't it? Yeah, like, and and what you're saying now, especially this year, the opportunity costs of having to forego. Uh, when the prices are so high now, and um, it, it's amazing. And then on top of that, so in, say, Picture Butte or in uh, Coldale, for instance, I think they got $219,000 for their crop that they wow. were able to donate. But I asked them then to also calculate how much the community was giving because they got the, the seed uh, free from uh, two or three different grain, uh, seed grain growers. They got the fertilizer for free. They got the chemicals for free. Uh, they had 18 combines coming out for their harvest, uh, which didn't charge for it. And, you know, the, the fuel or and the amount of person time, et cetera, et cetera. So all these and, different in-kind contributions yeah. as well as just yeah. the, the crop itself. It is. And so they had about $40,000 worth of community support uh, from the different uh, 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 farm supply uh, organizations mm. in the area. Wow. And then they got, I think, $2,000 worth of just donations of people who came to the field to watch these combines. Because <laughs> it's quite the spectacle, isn't it? Yeah, and 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 people were giving money, wow. and so they got that on top of it as well. So, and this is all happening at a time when you know inflation and interest rates are gone crazy. Yeah. There's all this uncertainty in the economy. The stock market is crash, you know, yeah. is plummeting, and and there's all this nervousness and apprehension. But people's generosity and desire to help is just un yeah. like you you can't extinguish that. It, no. I think it's, and I and I don't even think it's a oh you know us it's an Albertan thing or it's a Canadian thing. I think it's a human spirit thing that, yeah, as humans, as part of this global village, we want to we see something great happening like this, and you, it makes you want to be a part of it. Yeah, absolutely, and and you find that uh, especially in the, the rural areas you know i've in bonnieville we have uh, six different churches involved working together they do uh in addition to providing inputs for the field 
they once a year they have a huge community dinner. Mm. So they're going to have, uh, I think it's on the twenty, the second of November. They're going to have a huge community dinner. Vauxhall had a huge dinner, uh, a, a pig roast uh, this uh, year, and they, I think, they fed three hundred fifty people, and they uh, they raised forty thousand dollars that one night. Wow. And, uh, As a yeah. fundraiser to also yeah. contribute just more yeah. money. Yeah. Breton had a, a, a fundraiser. I think they raised $60,000 for for the Ukraine. Uh, That's incredible. For the food situation. And so it is unbelievable how people get behind all of this. This it just, is. and I can't explain it. Like my, my, the, the guy who took over my job in, uh, in Niger, how am I going to explain this to him? So, you know, it's stuck, it's stuck with me. <laughs> and then so, at the same time, so part of my job is translator. So I'm translating to them what I see here, and I translate what I've seen overseas to people here so they right. have an understanding of uh, of what we actually do. Right. With, what with an important bridge. Like, yeah. you have this role as a, as a bridge and as a connector. Yeah. between these worlds that are uh, that are connected and are supporting each other or dependent have this dependency and this this aid relationship but would otherwise not have any understanding of what's going on on the ground on yeah. the other side of the world so yeah, and it was a, a big learning curve for us too when we were first in Niger we are in Liberia we came back pretty well burned out but I had the wrong education I had a, a technical education. And hmm. I should have had a social work education. So I, I went back to school and I got a social work education uh, because I needed to know what made people tick. Like, how do you get people to work together for their right. own good? And that is the education I needed. There there were hmm. hundreds of, of out-of-work engineers in Liberia. We could have easily hired someone local uh, to do the technical work. Right, but what we needed is the process, the, the, the development uh, process. And so that is what it's all about. And again, when you talk about, okay, how can you find an organization that is doing really good work? Uh, if it is an organization that only hires people with technical skills, uh, you got to think about that a little bit because there are people with those same technical skills in mo most every country. For sure. It's yeah, so, that, uh, that's what I love about um, the Mission and Service Fund that the yeah. uh, United Church of Canada uh, uses that, uh, that same structure. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just a beautiful thing to, to see it in action. And we, every Sunday during our uh, church services, we have what's called a minute for mission. And we just have a, a oh, just okay. a couple minute long story. And sometimes it's a video, which is really cool oh, to see yeah. it, not just hear about it. But we have a minute for mission where we talk about. Um, a specific project and often a specific person and what's their, you know, this person and you hear their name and you hear their story and you maybe see them in the video. And um, it's just incredible and so inspiring to see the impact on people's lives. It yeah. just makes it more, it makes it tangible. It makes it real. Yeah, absolutely. And the United Church is a, is a valued member of the Canadian Food Grains Bank. Uh, yeah, been. I think has been for a long time. I don't know yeah. if the whole, you said you guys are celebrating your 40-year anniversary. Yeah, Is that right? 40, That's amazing. 40, yeah. And some of these projects that I'm talking about, I think the the two longest running projects have been doing this for 26 years in a row. 
Wow. And, um, like growing and, projects. Yeah. Wow. And, and um, the, the one in Bonneville is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. I think yeah. Vauxhall as well. So these these have this is not just a one you know a one off type of right. thing. These guys doing this uh, year after year after year in Leduc, the the group that is organized it uh, has seventeen members on it, and uh, they get together a number of times a year in uh, in someone's shop and uh, they uh, they talk about where they're going to get the fertilizer from and where they're going to get this from and how they're going to do this. They this past week they I I keep getting. Uh, Ding dings on my telephone from uh, from WhatsApp because they're gonna you know someone is looking for the hamburgers and and somebody else is going to the co-op for buns and someone else <laughs> is organizing the barbecue and yeah so uh, it sounds like so they make it make it fun yeah it is a lot of fun it is a lot of fun but there's also a lot of work behind the scenes so in uh, in Coldville uh, this year they had I think sixteen combines. And some of the equipment dealers come with their newest combines to show off uh, the newest combines. And uh, and I was a little late because I was in Picture Butte that day for another event. And by the, you know, an hour, so they started, I think, at one o'clock. By two o'clock, there was nobody on the field anymore. They had just harvested the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, but then it at six o'clock. Yeah. And that, but then at six o'clock, uh, we had uh, 12 balers on the field and four pickers and a stacker. And nobody was there uh, to watch that. And uh, there was no media there and there was no <laughs> fire truck there. And they were just doing this. And within an hour, they had bailed the entire field. Wow. And But nobody sees that. And so I made sure that I was there to take some pictures and to to talk with them and so on and so forth. Uh, the same with spraying, uh, you know, when they when they spray their chemicals, nobody sees that happening, but it is mm. happening. Right. You know, someone is driving his sprayer or her sprayer to the field and uh, is going to to spray this for a minute. Yeah, well, uh, it's, it's just it's a it's any normal um, barley, wheat, cornfield, whatever canola crop. Um, it has, it, you know, there's agronomists involved and there's yeah. fertilizer yeah. and there's the seed companies that like the, it's, it's the whole year, year of work to, yeah. to have that, you know, as, yeah, it might come off the, off the field in five hours because <laughs> it's a big work be on one day in September, but it's a whole year of preparation yeah. and work and inputs and everything. So. Um, yeah, and it's the entire community getting together. Yeah, that's a beautiful so in, thing. In uh, in Coldill and Picture Butte, for instance, they don't grow high value crops necessarily. They grow barley because mm -hmm. there's a lot of feedlots in the area, and so yeah. they're trying to auction the the uh, the barley off to local feedlots in order to keep it in the community. And that's, oh, that's why great. they also bale the straw because those feedlots can use the straw. So they sell the straw to local feedlots in order to make it a community project. Oh, that's cool. So, yeah, it is really cool. Yeah. So Ari, one last thing I want to talk, touch on, and I, I know that this can go down a, a path of sounding um, very discouraging when we talk about the, the future and the state of the world, but to give people a sense of the the level of need that you're aware of that a lot of us who don't work in development would maybe not be aware of 
there's I'm sure lots of folks in Canada don't even know what's going on in Pakistan right now. Obviously, everybody knows that there is a conflict in Ukraine and that Ukraine is a major uh, grain exporter. And so the the war with Russia is having a big impact on uh, food security in that region and all through Europe. Um, we are so interconnected globally now, and Canada is a major grain and beef exporter and exporter of many things because we're such a large country and such a relatively smaller population. When we look at this, you know, at the growth of the human population and on Earth, and we look at things like uh, human impacted climate change, it's easy to start getting discouraged and thinking, you know, it's it's all doom and gloom. For you, when you are someone who works directly with hunger crisis and, um, you know, uh, acute disaster need, how do you stay positive and how do you stay mentally and emotionally and spiritually balanced and, and, you know, staying in this work and not getting discouraged about, you know, how are we possibly going to make sure that we feed everybody? 20 years from now, 100 years from now, when you look at the the scary trends going on? That's a really, really good question. Uh, I I think there definitely are times when I'm not doing well. Mm. Uh, And um, so for quite a number of years, I uh, I, I worked on a consultancy basis with uh, members of the Food Grains Bank or for the Food Grains Bank. my background is development. And so when you work in development, you deal with people's strengths. You you believe that people can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps uh, if they're given a little bit of a hand uh, handoff. Um, then my work became more and more humanitarian. In, uh, and that then brings you to sort of the armpits of the world. So you see people who have fled Mosul, for instance, and you look at their faces and they're completely empty and uh, no affect left. And you see people um, uh, so traumatized that they go into convulsions when they have to uh, have a a meeting with their counselor. And do you see people who uh, have left everything? You see villages that are completely bombed flat um, I had to stop that work. At some point, my cup uh, became too full. And so um, so one of the things I had to do was to stop the humanitarian work. There's only so much you can do. Um, the, 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 the good answer for how do you stay healthy is, I think, by allowing yourself some distance. And that is not always easy. Mm-hmm. Um, because you get traumatized by seeing trauma. It's oh, yeah. vicarious trauma. And so not always easy. Um, I have to consciously remind myself that um, I do what I can do and the rest is actually God's job. Um, you know, you have to, it becomes very easy for your for your own arrogance to start winning out. And thinking that I can't stop this kind of work because then the world will will fall down. Right. That's not really true. The, that's think, the ego, hey? It is. You know, it is. And and we all have it. And I think that 
this kind of work, especially the international work, is very dangerous that way. Is you can become, your ego can take over. And you have to remind yourself that God works in spite of you and not because of you. Mm. And I, I can look back and I can see lots of mistakes that I made. And and God somehow turned it around, and we had a, you know we had results that are really clearly not mine, right? And so when you see that, you know God is always easier visible in the rearview mirror than through your front <laughs> windshield. No and kidding. And so the more of these stories that I have had, more of these examples that I have seen, uh, the better my my faith allows me to say. God will take care of this stuff. And yeah. uh, if I have to retire, then uh, God will find somebody else. And, yeah. and that is the great thing of seeing people taking over my work overseas. And Haruna, who's now in uh, in Mali, he's been working with the organization for 16 years. The organization that I started working, by the way, was actually a member of the Canadian Food Grains Bank. And so... When there was famine in Niger, I was able to use some of the Canadian Food Grants Bank funds to purchase grain and to uh, to help local people. So, and I didn't know that at the time, but it just happened to to be hmm. like that. And so, so in one way or another, you've been connected to Canadian yeah. Food Grants Bank for quite some time. Well, for, for all these years. Yeah. And then wow. When I came back out of Niger, I worked in Winnipeg as a director of uh, programming uh, for a while. Uh, before I came back to Calgary because our parents were getting older and then uh, uh, started doing more work as a, on a con- consultancy basis. So, but yeah, uh, what keeps me into this is the passion. I've, we've developed, my wife and I have developed an incredible passion for this work. And it, there is nothing better than seeing someone uh, succeeding in uh in improving their lives and uh, mm. it, that becomes really addictive and so and we've got so many stories and we've got so many miracle stories so seeing god at work is uh, there's nothing better i mean it's a wild ride when you start working for uh for god but uh there is uh and we all work for god it's not just missionaries and not just people who work overseas i have a brother who's a carpenter and I keep reminding him that his work is as much mission work as as ours was. It's just a, mm. we are being put on a pedestal sometimes because we <laughs> live overseas. But um, we, no, you're right. We all have our unique gifts and our yeah. unique callings, right? And it's yep. just about putting those uh, in putting those into practice in a way that benefits uh, the yeah. world around us. Yeah. yeah, being conscious of it. Yeah, you have to be conscious that that you're doing God's work as much as anybody else, and so mm-hmm. and so then you can start looking at what is what is God actually doing here? Uh, how do I recognize what He is doing in 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 my job? And uh, I think once you start looking for that, then it becomes exciting. Well, it's really clear, uh, Ari, that that. You have answered that call in a powerful way, and that you're doing what you're meant to be doing, <laughs> and to hear your passion for it is contagious for sure. And <laughs> I just 
I'm so glad that you were able to to come on the podcast today and share some of that story with us, share a bit of the perspective that your work has given you with us that, like I said, so many of us just have no clue um, as to the good, the scale of the good that's happening, um, as well as the scale of the need. And both are so important to to. uh, for people to have awareness of. So yeah. this has uh, been a great story to share, I think from, from that perspective too. So we'll, we'll wrap it up there, I think. And uh, unless you have any final words to share with us, uh, maybe one thing you could, could uh, point people to is just where to find more information about Canadian Food Grains Bank and how, um, if people are called to support this with a donation today or, or to just want to learn more, where, where should people go to? Uh, we have uh, we have a website uh, that you can uh, that you can go on um, Canadian Food Grains uh, Bank uh, website and, and we have a portal there uh, that uh, uh, will allow you to uh, to make donations. Uh, I'm just trying to look. That's great. Yeah, I'm, I've got it here now yeah. at foodgrainsfoodgrainsbank.ca. Yeah, food so grains. That's simple, yeah. and yeah, there's a big uh, blue yeah. donate button there that people can. Foodgrainsbank.ca. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, in terms of the need, you've been ta- talking about the uh, the scale of the need. Uh, the needs right now, food needs in the world are unprecedented. Uh, we are very, very worried about how we're going to uh, deal with that. Uh, Mostly it is due to a longer term ongoing uh, violent conflict. And then uh, climate change is a a big one as well. And so uh, for a number of years, we actually made some progress in uh, food security. uh, And then the last number of years, it's been uh, getting worse and worse. I think the the conflict in Ukraine is a a good example of that. Mm Um, and there's also lots of conflict in developing countries and uh, more people displaced. So, but um, we are there and we have boots on the ground in most of these places and having 15 organizations all throughout the world uh, working together to fight hunger uh, is, a, is, is, a, is a great thing to have. So, mm. And yeah. tackling it from so many different angles, right? Like, um people can can give financially but even things as simple as reducing the amount of waste like food waste yeah. we uh, we have a few distribution crisis as much as we have a yeah. hunger crisis and that we in places like here in Canada where we have abundance um simply you know being more aware of our own consumption being aware of more aware of our own uh waste uh, mm-hmm. and reducing reducing that and yeah. supporting things like Canadian Food Grains Bank. There's just many different ways that we can be part of the solution. So Yeah, and we can yeah. all be part of the solution. Yeah. Well, like I said, this has been a really, really inspiring story. So Ari, thank you again so much for joining me today on the podcast. And uh, for our listeners, if anyone's interested in hearing more stories like Ari's, we've been doing this for a few years now. We've got well over 100 episodes and past episodes of the podcast can all be found on our website, which is risingspiritministry.com. And uh, on the website there, you can click on media and then podcasts and see a library of all of our past episodes. And you'll also see our weekly um, blog that our Reverend uh, Robin King writes, which is always inspiring as well. And past um, 
sermon videos and uh, church service videos as well. So lots of great content to check out on the website. And uh, every second Friday, we've got a new story, a new episode of this podcast coming to you for the rest of uh, this fall and into the winter. So please come back and join us the next time. And until then, take care and be well. And again, Ari, thank you again so much for today. Thank you so much. You have a great day.